you were able to catch the lyrics of that song. That was some strong truth. Uh, the choir was uh, throwing at us this morning, singing uh, so well. Just so, um, well, Jesus' words to us that his call upon our lives are to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow him. Within a couple of weeks, this, is, this is, it takes a little more effort than you might would think, but within a couple of weeks, we're actually going to have all of the, anytime the choir is singing, uh, there'll be the, the words to what they're singing are also going to be on the screen. Uh, because I don't want you to miss any of what they're uh, delivering. Came across an interesting story this week about a man in the UK who made a, an odd discovery when his dog dropped her ball and began investigating a clump of seaweed during a recent beach walk in Ashire, Scotland. His dog uh, had sniffed out a clump of ambergris probably a person or two in the room knows what that is but it's a rare secretion that forms in the intestines of sperm wells and is highly valued in the perfume industry it's sometimes known as floating gold amber just typically carries a lofty price a 21 pound chunk discovered last year was valued at more than five hundred thousand dollars at that particular rate, Williamson's much smaller five and a five, five and a half ounce fine would have been worth around $8,000. The reason I tell you that story is that we're exploring a text that by our practice, in our reading practice and in what pastors typically preach on, we apparently do not think that the text of Scripture that we're about to look at is all that valuable we tend to to skip it all together or to read fast when we get to it but i pray that god awakens in our hearts the reality that everything is that is in his word is something that he has left to to shape us to shape our imagination and our thinking and to the extent that they're a part of God's word that we simply ignore, we are, we are the poor for that. There's something that God wants to say to us, and we're saying by our behavior, I'm not interested. And I would make the argument that ironically, the great exodus from the church for many who claim to know Jesus could perhaps be traced to the neglect of such passages. The, um, through the reading, and by the way, I'm in Exodus chapter 25 through 29. I, don't, I wouldn't even have time to read all of those passages to you, but we're going to do an overview of, of all of that. And through that, it is part of what God uses to communicate to us in ways that we don't even know how to articulate about who he is and about what he is doing in the world. He's shaping our hearts and he's shaping our imagination. What this contains is 
a very specific and detailed information about how the people were to construct the tabernacle that where they would worship God and it's the the details of the tabernacle the ark and the and the table of the presence and the tabernacle itself and uh, the the vestments of the priest and then finally the the consecration all of that detail is there for a reason and it's all based on the reality that God has chosen to dwell in his people and it's not just an elaborate worship center set up out there in the desert a right reading of this text shows that that God was setting up a piece of heaven on earth and again, we have neglected these passages to our detriment. And I'm going to read quite a bit of text, and there'll be less comments from me, and I pray that we will engage in them together and invite God's Holy Spirit to impress on us what He intends to do. Our to our uh, very Americanized short attention span um, selves, it seems like a lot of tedious detail but just the sheer repetition of it all and the detail of it all is a signal to us from God that we've we've found ourselves hovering over the heart of the matter so here's what we're getting at what strategy can we follow to awaken wonder at the privilege of worship and prayer and I'll just acknowledge the obvious there's no strategy that you and I can do apart from the power of God and the power of His Holy Spirit awakening in us that, that's going to work. The title of this message is called Restoring Wonder. And I want you to see, first of all, our need to recognize God's intention to dwell with His people. So we're in this series in kind of the heart of Exodus. Exodus begins with the people in slavery in Egypt and God using Moses to lead the people out of Egypt through the plagues. And then there's the experience of the crossing of the Red Sea and the institution of the Passover. And then the beginning of the, the giving of the Old Testament law, specifically with the Ten Commandments. And then we're in this section that follows on uh, the Ten Commandments with this instruction about how worship was to be conducted. And again, all Scripture, the Apostle said, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And this text is a part of that. So, by God's grace, may we dive into the text. Exodus chapter 25, first of all, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, 
onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece that's part of what the priests would wear and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture so shall you make it so you shall make it our very um, lack of familiarity with all these people speaks to the reality that we don't even grasp all that God would do in us as we read these lines carefully and is why I will take the time to read significant chunks of this text But part of the wonder of this is that God seeks to communicate with people at all. I have had the privilege of of studying and then speaking on the Trinity in recent days. And part of what has been impressed on me by that is that if, if God were just a single-person God. If, if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had, had not been coexisting, relating to one another, loving one another for all eternity, why in the world would God have created in the first place? Why would there, if God were not a relational God, if God were not a loving God, His very, his very impulse to create and his very impulse then to speak to his people to explain to his people how to relate to him it would would make no sense at all and we'll say more about that in a second by the way notice the language there it says you shall receive the contribution for me just a, a pet peeve of mine we don't take up an offering in a worship service we receive it never seen anybody take an offering you know by some sort of force we don't do that if you're new that doesn't happen it's it i mean right here in the old testament and many other places the 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 spirit prompts us to give out of obedience now if you're not being prompted to give that's evidence of a problem but we're not taking anything god prompts us to give but the Holy Spirit is doing work in us. These, these images, these, these colors, all of this that is being gathered affects us aesthetically and that God, is the, that God is establishing a piece of heaven on earth. And then I know you noticed as I emphasized it in reading that it was all that he may dwell in their midst. And so we see God's mercy, God's loving Uh, attitude god's generous spirit in in reaching out to people but it's on his terms we don't set the way that happens in michael reeves book delighting in the trinity he says along these lines if god was not a father if we only knew god as creator and not primarily as Father, as the Word of God reveals Him to us. He could never give us the right to be His children. 
If he did not enjoy eternal fellowship with his son, we would have to wonder if he would have any fellowship to share with us at all, or if we would even, or if he would even know what fellowship looks like. If, if God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were creations of God and not co-eternal with him, uh, then n knowing him and being loved by him, what sort of relationship with the Father could he even share with us in the first place? If the Son and the Holy Spirit had never been close to the Father, how could he possibly bring us up close? This language here, we're meant to see in all of the detail that he goes into is to impress on us, which only the Holy Spirit can do in a forceful way that creates wonder to recognize God's intention to dwell with His people on His terms. It's a stunning mercy to people through no benefit of our own. It's good news. God is reaching out. He is a fountain of goodness into eternity past. And His generosity is shown through, through all of this beauty and extravagance. But, again, it's on His terms. And there are many people who claim the name of Jesus, even many churches who are dramatically altering by um, interpreting away large swaths of Scripture in a way as to simply, and for all practical purposes, they've created a different religion. They're still using this book, but they've explained it all away in such a way that it's something else altogether. And, and this exacting detail, he says there again in verse 19, that's the point of this. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. They were, there's a point to all of this that I'll get to before the end. But this exacting detail means they were, there were consequences, dire consequences, if they did not follow God's intentions specifically. From a New Testament perspective, John 1.14 um, is the, in the, this, this large passage of scriptures about the creation, the instructions, which we won't get to, are the, the instructions about the tabernacle. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That term there, translated dwelt, in most translations is tabernacled. This, all of this, all of this detail points to the Lord Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't want to jump to the punchline too quickly, but all of this detail, all of this beauty, all, all of the sacrifices and the detail that is accomplished there are all, or that's described there, are all accomplished in the life and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So what this means to us, you know, we are so bent to, um, you know, just give me the bottom line. What, what possible difference does this make in my life tomorrow afternoon? And the answer is, I'm not sure specifically. I'm not sure how this is going to help you answer email tomorrow afternoon when you need to be doing that. But the Holy Spirit is intending to shape our hearts and to shape our imaginations. And so the way this applies to us now is that we, we must clear time to read God's Word unhurriedly without distraction. And I will acknowledge to you, I know 
from recent experience. That's really hard with small kids. Friday, I had my three-month-old grandchild and my two-year-old grandchild on my own for several hours. That is not for the faint of heart. And and, uh, if I hadn't gotten up early, there wouldn't have been any scripture reading time. But, uh, so I get it. There are, there are seasons of life where that's hard, but a lot of us do manage through these devices to look at all kinds of stuff, whether it's social media or news or, or sports or even you know, streaming Netflix on this thing. You, we find ways to do what, what we want to do and what we believe matters. Secondly, you need to get your hands on a good study Bible, to help, especially in this kind of material because this is not familiar to us we need help um i i'm preferable i'm i'm not sure i'm saying that right uh but at any rate you know what i'm saying i like the esv study bible but there are many great ones but then and then we need to be willing to persevere in in the hard parts and use the helps and the many people god is has awakened a love for him and a love for his word by by having the taking the time to read slowly and it creates a new imagination and creates new interest god wants to do that in us what strategy can you and i follow to awaken wonder at the very privilege that god has extended to us of his presence and of the privilege of, of being able to worship him to be able to pray to him first of all we need to recognize god's intention to dwell with his people that's what god is bent to do intending to do but secondly we need to allow the holy spirit through this passage of scripture to remove our blinders to god's holiness to remove our blinders to god's character look with me at verses 10 through 22 again this is this is stuff that that i'm guessing we're probably not all that familiar with the text says they shall make an ark of acacia wood now that the text i just showed you was introductory and then he begins to give detail and it's interesting he they don't build the tabernacle first the the first instructions are the ark uh, where the um the tablets of the testament will go look at this detail they shall make an ark of acacia wood two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark they shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that i shall give you you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them 
on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." All of that detail was important. Again, remember he said exactly as I explain this to you or to you to do this. And all of this beauty, all of this extravagance is all from a New Testament perspective communicating us to the wonder of the Lord Jesus because he is the fulfillment of all of this. But this ark, you couldn't just pick that thing up like a load of laundry. Some of you know the story later where someone put their hand on it, they touched it directly, and they were, they were killed. And, you know, a casual reading of that could lead someone to think, well, God seems like he's pretty touchy. But, but that's not the point. All of this is to communicate the holiness of God. It's, it's astounding his mercy that he's extending to us but we can't just make up our own terms to come to him. And surely you noticed also that inside of this ark, this, is, this goes first because it's the very representation of the presence of God. But God's presence is not just this mystical entity. It's a word. It's, it's communication. It's instruction to the people. And then there's this mercy seat. I mean, it's hard to even imagine all of this. But it, it also speaks of God's mercy. And I, and I haven't seen anybody mention this in any commentary or anything, but it's, it's interesting. Next week, we'll be looking at the, the far more well-known incident of the golden calf in Exodus 32. And it struck me that the language about that as and again i don't want to get into next week's sermon this morning but this very language here of hammered gold speaks of when the people give aaron materials that is a very similar idea that aaron takes that and and shapes it and and fashions it so what god is intending here to display his presence is something will be used later to directly disobey and go against what God communicates here. But God is communicating to them how to live with him. God didn't have to do this. His nature is like a fountain of life communicating to his people how to know him and how to worship him and how to relate to him. In her book, Creed or Chaos, Dorothy Sayers addresses the seven deadly sins. And when she addresses the sin of sloth, which normally when we think of sloth, we, we think of laziness. But she says that's, that's kind of a, a misunderstanding of what that real sinful condition is. 
Rather, she says, it means a life driven by a cost-benefit analysis. What's in this for me? So even just to look at a text like this is like, ah, I don't have time for that. That's, I don't see how that relates to my life. I'm, I'm moving on. But it gets more pointed. She writes, Sloth is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. God is intending through this text to open the eyes of our heart, to remove our blinders to his character, especially his holiness. And we have created such a casual atmosphere of worship in this country that, hear me carefully, the solution is not suits and ties and, and rules and formal liturgies. This is a heart issue because of regardless of how we dress and the style of worship that we prefer, we need to recognize what this detail reveals about the holiness of God, about the degree of our sinfulness, about only being able to come to God on his terms, and ultimately on the accomplishment of the cross and on the glory of Jesus. And all of this detail and all of this repetition reveals that God cannot lower his standards and still be God. We must come to him on his terms. And all of this shows his love and his mercy to us. In another work of Michael Reeves, I've already quoted him today, but he says, God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living, holy, and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake that's what it means to fear God. And that is what the Holy Spirit intends to do in me and you through this text. What strategy can we follow to awaken wonder at who God is, at his mercy, and at the privilege of worship and prayer? So we need to see that God's intention is to dwell with his people. We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and, and ask him to awaken our hearts and our minds to see God's holiness. And finally, may we respect the wonder of who you are in Christ if you have been converted. So I am skipping all the way to the end of chapter 29. So we've, we've just read from the beginning of chapter 25 and I'm skipping over detail about how the altar was to be constructed, how the tabernacle was to be constructed. I mean, it's huge amounts of detail. How the priests were to be attired. That's all chapter 28. And I'm skipping to the very end of chapter 29 that speaks to the consecration of the priests to do their jobs and we'll we'll finish up the message with that point but the all of this volume and all of this detail is part of the point and i would urge you 
to take some time in the next few days to read all of that. So chapter 29, verses 35 through 46 says this. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons. So Aaron is, is the first high priest and his, his sons will be the priests following him. According to all that I have commanded you, through seven days you shall ordain them, shall you ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb shall you offer in the morning, and the other lamb shall you offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting. Their actions didn't do that. God did it. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Here's what I want you to see and to ponder with me for a moment. All of that material, all of that detail, all of those sacrifices, all of those days, all of that repetition just to begin the ministry of the priests. But then, for year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, all pointing forward to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And then one time, He suffered on the cross and accomplished all of that. All of it was pointing to Him. And so we see the wonder of what He accomplished. He didn't need to be sacrificed over and over and over. But it was all pointing forward to that. But even further, I want you to see this. There's nothing more important than what I just said. But here's the point I want to make with you this morning. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you, your, you yourselves like living stones 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you realize what this means? Pastors and teachers and theologians so easily talk about the priesthood of the believer. But you don't, you don't have to go through a priest any longer to pray directly to God. But the Holy Spirit does something inside of us. When we, I, didn't, I skipped the whole chapter about all of the vestments of the priest. All of this detail and all of this effort that God would use to sanctify just so these men could serve as priests. And Jesus accomplished all of that for you and me in an instant. But it means, what that text means is that if you know Jesus, if you have been born again, you are a priest. And we need to bear, we need to grasp the significance of that and the wonder of that in at least two directions. You don't belong to you. God has given you a purpose and you are a priest. You may never stand to do what I'm doing, but that's not the point. Every single believer is a priest, and God has given you a purpose and spiritual gifts and opportunities and relationships, and he has no intention of you keeping it to yourself. You are not your own, and what you do with your time, what you think about with your mind, what you do with your money, what you do with your opportunity, that all belongs to God, and he intends for you to use it for that for his purposes but secondly look at what's been accomplished those priests could enter the holy of holies one time a year and the way has been opened for us at any time but we we relate to prayer as if I just, nah, I just don't have time today I'm too busy, I'm too distracted, and we, we squander our lives on stuff that doesn't matter. And look what God's accomplished so that we can come directly to him in prayer. He's invited us into relationship with him. I shared with you that quote um, earlier about um, the significance that God has been relating within the Trinity all the way into eternity past. Here's the end of that quote. If God was a single person, salvation would look entirely different. He might allow us to live under His rule and protection, but at an infinite distance approached perhaps through intermediaries. He might even offer forgiveness, but he would not offer closeness. 
And since by definition he would not be eternally loving because there would have been no one there to love if it were just a single person God, would he, would he deal with the price of sin himself and offer that forgiveness for free? Most unlikely. Distant hirelings, we would remain never to hear the son's golden words to his father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. You have been given shocking access to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May we respond in faith to the invitation. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. That we may know you. I pray that I pray, I pray that we would recognize that you would you would help us to see for every person in the room at some point in time. They either have already or still have not yet been alerted to the reality that our sin actually separates us from all of this and all of those sacrifices all of those details speak both to the, the seriousness of our sin and the glory of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and so I pray that you would create faith in each of us to run to you for the very first time, some of us, to cry out to you for mercy because our need for you is so blindingly obvious, but that all of us recognize that, that we'll never outgrow the need to be amazed and to be drawn into wonder of who you are and what you've offered to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.